Hello, welcome to Podcasting as Praxis. We are here this week, or this episode I should say, because we keep going fucking two a week just now, uh, to cover the EU. We're going to cover what the fuck it is, what it does, and generally just not so much to dispel the myths or anything too fubpy about that, but we like to consider the fact that now that it's probable that we're not going to leave, um, it would be good to actually see what it is and what we can do with it. Uh, so I'm here with Rob. Hi, I'm Rob. Um, I'm today's unelected Eurocrat, broadcasting live from Brussels. <laughs> We've got Alicia. Hi, I'm in here in London, angry about the Liberal Democrats. We're all angry about the Liberal Democrats, <laughs> but thankfully they have fuck all to do with this episode. <laughs> Thank and, God. <laughs> and we're also here with John. Hello, everybody. I'd just like to ask, what are you like? Hey. There you go. First pun of the day. There's going to be many, many more, I'm sure. Oh, that's oh, great. Yeah, there's going to be, I mean, the EU famously good for making jokes. So, it's uh... <laughs> what happens say, when the French and Germans put something together. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, Rob, as you're the, the, the unelected bureaucrat here, <laughs> we'd like you to give us a rundown, basically, of the EU. What the f- Fuck. Yeah. All right. The EU. All right. No, that, that's uh, that's a that's a very fair question, and uh, I've been working in and around uh, the EU and the institutions for about six uh, years now. So I know some of it, and I know other people who know more of it. But like, what's really important to understand is like, even though there are people who've spent their entire professional lives in Brussels. Nobody understands the EU as like a whole. It's a very difficult thing to to fully grasp. Like if you want to know all the details, um, so I thought what we do is sort of very briefly give an overview of the history uh, of like where does this project even come from, um, what's it composed of, how does it spend its money, um, what kind of you know weird um, spider people work here. Uh, <laughs> some fun with the euro and then i think we should talk for some time about the future and and let's say the uk does remain um what should we do to reform it to make it a more uh socially relevant and acceptable body yeah because as, as much as the eu is like has some good aspects to it it also has some famously really fucking shit ones yes. so I mean, we'll, we'll go on to those kind of later on as well, I think. Um, but if we are going to remain, then obviously we would probably like to reform it because yeah. it's not that good. Yeah, um, no, yeah. no, it's not. Um, well, essentially, so to, to sort of kick us off, the main thing about the European Union in its inception, and actually, like, if you still look at it, it, it is what it exists to do today, is it exists to balance out Germany and France and essentially to stop them from blowing each other up, which they used to do with you know, fa- fairly regularly uh, until the end of World War Two. So, um, and during its formation and during the most of its existence so far, it was also meant to counterbalance uh, the Soviet Union, the USSR, uh, and the Warsaw Pact. So together with NATO, NATO was its military component, and the EU was its civilian component to sort of provide um, uh, a, a a capitalist Western alternative to another hegemonic structure that was there in, in Eastern Europe. Um, however, it's not just that. It's also um, a recognition, a slow one, um, that Europe is no longer an imperial power. 
European countries mm. no longer have. I mean, everybody still has like some islands and stuff, but like nobody really has an empire anymore. Um, the Falklands aren't just some islands. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are. I know they are the most pure form of uh, of the UK there is. I say so you have some people. You would say they we still have an empire. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. We've got, what have we got? We've got the Falklands. We've got that one island where everyone is a, an incest nonce. Um, what? What, what else is there? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you no, mean, no, you that, mean that's... Uh, Westminster Palace? Oh. No, no, there is actually an island. Oh, oh fuck, I'm going to need to find out the name of that. Yeah, oh, yeah, you, have, um, you have to find out what that is now. That's quite the statement. <laughs> okay, this is, they just made Prince Andrew their uh, tribal leader. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. His okay. thing about oh, day no, sweating. See, oh, <laughs> when you Google island pedophiles, <laughs> all you get there is Jeffrey That's, Epstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, so fuck. Essentially, um, like the uh, post World War One and post World War II, um, Europe is no longer a, a global colonial empire, but it is a. Uh, it, it essentially turned itself into an empire, um, and I think there is some truth to the fact that, like. If there wasn't something like the EU, uh, no individual country would essentially be strong enough to stand up in the current moment. Like the the, the Dutch alone, or the French alone, or the Germans alone, would essentially have been, uh, you know, subdivided themselves into power blocks, probably belonging to the US or otherwise. So it's 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 a way. It, it, it took the external empire, made it internal, and because it functions as a big block, has power again. Um, that's not to say the idea of Europe is is new. It's very old, essentially. It comes from anything to Charlemagne and was then pretty much revived in the second half of the 19th century. So you get a bunch of people who say, actually, what we need to, again, stand up to the Russians and then some other people uh, is a, a broad empire, uh, is, is, is a European Union of the continent itself. Um, but really, it starts in 1949, uh, with, with the Council of, of Europe. Council of Europe still exists today. It's not... It, this is one of these weird fucking Euro things you, you're going to have to get used to. The Council of Europe is related to, but not part of the European Union. Um, <laughs> it, but, but that was essentially like a, a sort of UN-like talk shop for Europe plus countries where they talked about human rights uh, essentially as an anti-communist thing. Uh, about being pro-democracy um, and still exists. And I think even Russia still has a seat on the Council of Europe, as does Turkey, as do some other things. But it's nothing to do with the formal institution of the European Union itself. Okay. Yeah, it was um, more about like compliance with norms and everything following the Second World War. Yeah, Europe. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, I think the closest modern analogy to, yeah, you would have to today is something like the African Union, which mm. also does that stuff but has no... Mm. You know, they have some peacekeepers, I know, but no real force projection and no uh, imperial ambition. Um, Like international law. Um, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. The real integration essentially begins in 1952, uh, where you get the the core six countries. They're still called that today. The Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Italy, and then Western Germany uh, form what's called the coal and steel community. And that was... I mean, this really came, I mean, it's 52, it's seven years after World War II. Um, and this is a realization by a bunch of statesmen that 
if we tie together the the German and French uh, coal mining and and um, steel producing, which were then seen as the most sort of vital tools to to have a war, if we tie them together in uh, sort of an in international community, it will become much harder for them to go to war because their two industries will be joined together. Um, this was also these six countries also coordinated all the aid coming through the Marshall Plan at the time, which was obviously America's rebuilding effort or or consolidation against the rise of socialism and communism in also in 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 Western Europe as well. Um, and that's that's where it begins. And then it from there on it every step of the process, what it does, the Europe grows not just. Um, territorially, so more and more countries join over time, um, but its responsibilities um, grow over time. And one of the things that it tries to do during this this period of growth, which is essentially its longest period, is about forty five years, called the European Economic Community, um, is it it does many things, but mainly it exists as a as a trade-off between German industrial power, the, the Ruhr and the, the, the car manufacturing, and French agricultural power. So there's sort of a deal of, okay, Germany gets to make cars and fridges and what it likes, and France gets to have a big um, agricultural sector, and the countries of Europe essentially pay for that. Um, and obviously, this is all during the Cold War, um, so it's also, uh, again, this is still the counterweight to the Warsaw Pact. Um, and it's also about slowly arises the, the common market. So what you get is the um, uh, the removal of borders, um, common regulations for machines and products and everything like that. And it's at, certainly at that time, it's extremely uh, protectionist. So you still have all these stories about, oh, you know, African countries cannot import into the EU because they have very high tariff barriers. That's still true up to a point. But like during that time, up to 92, that's when this really was like a massive thing. Um, massive external tariffs, uh, especially for agricultural stuff, export subsidies, really helping EU countries that joined and that were part of it um, maintain their industrial uh, and service powers. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, and obviously for you guys as the main interest, um, the first time the UK tried to join was in 1960, uh, famously vetoed by President of France, Charles de Gaulle, who thought that the UK was a, essentially just a front for the US, so the US would have a foothold inside this new mechanism. Um, and also, that would never happen. Was right. <laughs> Imagine Charles de Gaulle being right about something. Yeah, it's very weird. It's very weird, but he was, you know, not entirely wrong uh, occasionally. Um, I mean, that also comes back to actually one of the points of the EU and being a member of it is he had that veto right. Yes, just him alone managed to stop us joining at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, up to the latest reform, so two thousand seven. Uh, essentially, uh, the, the, Europe as a body had to decide by unanimity. So France, you know, can definitely do that. Um, however, unanimity is always a thing like it's real, but like a veto is only really wielded by the big powers. So the UK can veto things, France, Germany, Italy, but like, you know, especially now, Estonia, nobody cares about Estonia and nobody cared about like a Luxembourg veto back then. It didn't really, like you had to be a big player to essentially wield that veto. Hmm. 
Um, but in 1972, you joined. Hooray for everybody. Um, and then I wish in... We hadn't. <laughs> yeah, this was... I mean, we're not going <laughs> to... The whole exhibition of... <laughs> just a... Imagine all the fucking bother that would have been fucking saved if we just didn't bother in the first place. Well, I mean, at the time, I mean, this is 72. I can't remember who your PM was. I mean, it, it, it was essentially seen uh, and, and uh, sort of marketed as a curative because your economy wasn't running very smoothly in the 1970s, to put it that way. Um, and it was essentially no, it pitched... was all starting to go shit. Yeah, but it was essentially pitched by I think mainly Labour, but also as the Conservatives of. Wasn't it Heath if... though that was in I power think it when was. it because it was, it was, yeah, it was wasn't, it, time, wasn't yeah. it January nineteen seventy? I remember it was like right at the start of the year when I was like campaigning for a main. We would be like, we've had we've been in the EU since the first of January nineteen seventy three. Uh yeah, exactly. So um, it was Heath. Yeah, so the, 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 the campaign was essentially if we join the EU, uh, we will get economic benefits. And so if the, yeah. EU, the, the EU-UK relationship is really fucking long, and I don't think this is a Brexit episode necessarily, but... No, 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 no. The, I think it's fair to say that the UK has always seen the EU as, a, as pretty much like 90 to 100% a tool for economic interest. Um, you know, it is there to provide a bigger market for British stuff, for for the city to expand its services. Uh, whereas on the continent, especially because of the war, it has always been seen as a as an integrationist, as a social project. At the same time, I think a lot of that falls down to the kinds of government that we've had. Because mm. from seventy nine, when it was Thatcher onwards, I mean, it's it's entirely been pure neoliberalism. Yes. That, that whole fucking time. So obviously it's all been about number go up, number must go up. Yeah, yeah. And and, and, and that sort of what you get in the nineteen eighties and through into the nineteen nineties when you have um and the early two thousands with uh, Gerhard Schroeder and um I wanna say Mitterrand, but there's a couple of other French prime ministers, the Dutch like everybody does what Blair does, like the sort of neoliberal third way mm-hmm. turn of social democracy saying markets are supreme we cannot and um, must not interfere with them uh and that is essentially enshrined in most of the big pieces of legislation uh that have come out of the eu for the last 20 years mm-hmm. uh <laughs> and then so in 85 to, to briefly do the history bit um in 85 you get the schengen agreement uh, which is the passportless, the the free travel, but mm. in inside uh, part of the European Union, not all of them, but part of them. Um, this is why when you guys, if you guys go to Europe on holiday, um, you don't need to show your passport anywhere once you've crossed the border. Although that's now sort of being uh, pulled back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, there was a question from John about the uh, exchange rate mechanism, because that was a big deal, I know, for the UK in the 1990s. The exchange rate mechanism was essentially the precursor to, to the euro. It was the idea that you would fix all the exchange rates of the currencies against each other with a certain limited amount of, of, of float between them. And obviously, if all your currencies are linked to each other in this mechanism, um, then your exporters and producers don't suffer price shock because they know years in advance, technically speaking, what the currencies, you know, how many Italian liras you're going to get for your British pounds, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, obviously, that's very difficult to maintain. I mean, this is a very economic story, but essentially, um, this is where uh, you know our financial sponsor George Soros, George Soros, uh, made a lot of his money. <laughs> Cheers, George. <laughs> and then in there. Oh, sorry, I'll try to speed this up. But in '92, you get the what's called the Maastricht Treaty, and the Maastricht Treaty really lays the fun is is the world we sort of live in now, um, and also lays the foundation for the euro itself. Um, this was the point where we got a bunch of fucking concessions to yes have us not fucking torpedo the entire thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where you get the the rebates from and um, a couple of... You also got a bunch of um, exemptions and handouts, especially for the London city. And that was keeping the pound as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yep. keeping yep. the pound, which is still one of your wisest decisions. We'll try to talk about the e, uh, the euro as well a little bit later, but like the, mm-hmm. the decision not to be part, you know, Gordon Brown saved your bacon there. Uh, the euro is a, a terrible device. Um, and then in 2004, and then I think this is quite important because this is where a lot of the, um, and I'm sure you're, uh, you, you know, uh, Alicia, you were saying you campaigned for Remain. I'm sure yeah. you heard a lot like, oh, the EU is undemocratic and it doesn't follow the will of the people mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah, all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of that was essentially came about in 2004 because we tried to introduce uh, Europe and then the heads of government tried to introduce um, a, a constitution for Europe. Mm. Um, and which then, to uh, genuinely to the surprise of pretty much everybody at the time, uh, it failed because it needed to be ratified um, by all countries. And a lot of countries had decided to do a referendum on whether or not this this was supposed to you know, whether or not this constitution was going to go ahead. And two of the country in and the UK had already scheduled uh, its own referendum. Tony Blair had agreed to that in 2004. But then the two ones that came before that in the Netherlands and France, they failed. Um, oh. hmm. So they, they, you know, this, this referendum, this existed. And because it failed, they withdrew the whole um, constitution itself. Right. Uh, because they said, well, clearly, because, you know, France and the Netherlands, again, these are, you know, the core six countries. Two of them have said, no, we don't want to do this. Um, and essentially, it really saved Tony Blair's bacon because it meant that he didn't have to do a referendum on the EU in 2004, which he had agreed to do. Hmm. Oh. So we're going to have a referendum back then. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That was the whole plan was for you guys hmm. to have a referendum in 2004 to, to, to do it. But the whole thing was pulled because the French and the Dutch essentially beat you to the punch. Huh. Okay. That just it just further proves how much Thatcher Blair and uh, Cameron are all a bit in sync. It's really upsetting when you hear stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, Blair was the first <laughs> one to actually sort of say, "Okay, we can, you know, we will do a referendum on this." Which, you know, I'm not going to defend Tony Blair, but that was. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't that. know if he, if if it would have passed in 2004. I have no idea, but mm. you know, mm. I do think it would have. Mm. You wouldn't have had the problems you would have now had yeah, there been I had something no idea. in 2004. I don't know, but I mean, it probably would have been. It probably would have actually, but maybe not passed in like the full-on form. But with the yeah, if it was like remained with those concessions that we agreed and all that kind of stuff, it probably would have passed fine because there really wasn't a lot of like really big anti-EU sentiment as far back as that. Yeah, mm. I mean, I know Farage was already around, but 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, UKIP didn't really become a big force until after that point. Mm. No. Interesting. And, and there was, I mean, there was already that segment sort of what we now call the ERG, the European Research. Research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there was always an element in the Tory party that just didn't want to be European for sort of almost psychological reasons, I think is the best mm. way to put it. Mm. Um, but that didn't, I, I don't know. This is kind of counterfactual history, but I do think it would have saved everybody a lot of grief. Um, and in general, as far as the European Union goes, like um, it would have given it more legitimacy because what they did after, and this is where <laughs> I think a lot of the argument comes from about the EU being illegitimate, is after it failed in France and the Netherlands, um, what was called a group of wise men, so sort of some of those senior statesmen uh, from the centre-left and centre-right parties sort of uh, went to a big retreat and sort of said, okay, now what do we do? And the answer they came up with was the Lisbon Treaty, which is the current main document that sort of is the legal underpinning of the powers of the European Union, Oh, um, terrible, terrible bad document from everything I've read on Facebook. Oh, terrible document. We never read it. And it, it does all no, these really, it, really bad things. <laughs> it does a lot of very bad things. Um, but I think just in terms of this history, what I think is important is what they did is they said, okay, what we can't do is have more referenda because clearly like that's not a winner. So what we do is we present the Lisbon Treaty, which technically like is not a thing of itself. But it mm. amends uh, the Maastricht Treaty of seventy of ninety two, and because of the way like that is legally structured, um, there was no legal demand anywhere to hold a referendum because it was an amendment. So like the governments of the day could just pass it. So they snuck mm. in essentially the content of the, the the constitution that failed in through the back door via a, a seven hundred page amendment to the Maastricht Treaty, which is, of course, an insane way of doing business. Yeah. But this is, I mean, you have to remember, you know, this is the time, this is 2006, 2007, before the crash. This is when everybody, like, the optimism for neoliberal globalization um, and, you know, the dawn of a new world was sky high. And, And I think governments pretty much everywhere in Europe, certainly, you know, late 2007 it's it's gordon brown you know they've completely lost touch with this idea of uh popular democracy it's very much a technocratic we know what's good for the people kind of thing mm. do you think they're justifying it to themselves because uh a rat just before this period of time was when the surge in uh terrorism really started to impact european countries as well so yeah they start they started to justify them sort of skipping over democracy as you know a necessary measure as, as, as a, yeah do. as a, as an expedient and as a what yeah. they would call but interestingly um the the irish did say no we do have to put this to a referendum because they had done like i think 10 of them with every step with every treaty change of the eu the irish actually had a referendum and always passed them by pretty big majority somewhere between 60 and 70 percent but this is the first time on the Lisbon Treaty that it fails in the first round. Um, Mm -hmm. And essentially what the Irish did, which again, this is where a lot of the illegitimacy comes from. And like, I don't disagree on that, is that the Irish government essentially said, no, you have to vote again and do it right. (laughs) So they just hold a second referendum and say, no, no, no. Like, you guys are a bit dim. You have to do this again. But that's undemocratic. (laughs) Yeah, it's very strange. (laughs) 
but that's the thing and the, 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 the difference I mean the, the argument always is like I mean yeah go back to Brexit like second referendum's undemocratic because you're just doing having a do-over but then depending on what you're actually asking it's not a do-over because it was yes no leave remain whereas yeah. the next question would be this deal or remain yeah like, exactly mm. um, and essentially but whereas have- they just they just launched in way right here's yeah. the same thing have a better think about it go away yeah, and come yeah. back and do the right thing mm. Uh, I mean, and obviously, like, that's just very insulting to democratic process. And it was also, but you ha- I mean, not to make excuses for it, but you also have to imagine that, you know, for, for the Irish government, everybody else had essentially given green light already. And then it's like, uh, is this the whole thing going to fail now uh, because of, you know, three million Irish uh, nay voters, you know, versus 26 countries. So you have to, uh, it, it, not that that makes the Irish thing illegitimate, but the pressure on the Irish government to do something about it is is fairly extraordinary, particularly yeah. because uh, this is after the Good Friday Agreement. You know, like saying no to Europe at that point would have been a very tricky business, just in terms of the pure border alone, as I think you know we're finding out right now. <laughs> uh, um, but honestly, what happens then is that um, the Irish referendum and the second referendum, which does pass, like it scares the fucking pants of all the other EU member states. Um, because some of them had said, okay, maybe we will hold a referendum. Once the Irish thing happens, the word referendum disappears from all the governments. Like, it, they just don't want to do this thing anymore. Um, so it, it, the Maastricht Treaty isn't great. It doesn't. It, it produces a lot of outcomes, especially in terms of the, the way it, it regulates markets and uh, controls state aid, especially on the economic side. It's extremely neoliberal. It's very, you know, markets are uncontrollable it's not our job to do that uh, we are there to facilitate is that kind of stuff but and i do think this is an important bit um it also legitimizes what's called the uh charter of fundamental rights which is essentially the human rights of the constitution that fails and allows all eu citizens access to the european court of justice the european court of human rights for redress so it, it, it enshrines sort of you know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, all that kind of stuff at a pan-European binding level, which obviously, if you're right now, if you're living in a country like like Hungary, it's kind of important that, that those rights are assured by a body higher than your own court, which you can't trust mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, although I have to say, uh, through my job, we have some experience of uh, suing until the European court. And essentially, if you don't have, I would say, roughly £200,000 in lawyer's fees, then you will never get to the European Court of Justice. Because hmm. uh, it's a hugely long, uh, expand, expanded process. Um, it also, this Lisbon Treaty also sets up the European Central Bank, uh, famously, you know, part of the euro and, and, and you know, lots of fun with, with Greece and stuff. So it, it, it mm-hmm. sets that up. It makes it part of the EU, but like all central banks of the time, you know, it's like, yes, it's it, it, but it's part of the EU, but the EU has no say over it. None whatsoever. It's like the Bank of England now. You know, the, the House of Commons has nothing to say about the policy or direction or, or the rate setting of the, the, um, of, of the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. And the third thing that it does, which I think is a quite an, an, an important bit, uh, is it shifts the balance of power between the European Council uh, and the European Parliament, and it essentially makes the partner, uh, uh, the Parliament, for the first time ever, a full um, 
legislative partner because before it was mainly advisory but now the parliament must give green light and must give its majority consent to any uh laws and regulations coming out not all regulations but like all big pieces of law uh and directives that come out of the eu um must now be ratified by parliament so it is like it massively increases the democratic um control yeah legitimacy and control and 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 all that stuff that the eu really never properly had before i mean weirdly enough when when the parliament was set up um you couldn't even no european citizen could vote for it for the first like 10 years uh because nobody could agree how to apportion the votes so essentially national governments appointed people to the parliament Hmm which is just a bizarre way of obviously doing democratic legitimacy but whatever yeah uh <laughs> so as a as a and as a final kicker obviously for you guys it adds in article 50 because before that it literally wasn't possible to escape the eu uh in any sense oh well at least i added that any that's good yeah. it's not easy. It's any sort of fucking bother jesus so, yeah. thank you for that that's good yeah so it's like, yeah no that's that's Fucking, you've done pretty well there to condense that into a lesson for now. <laughs> oh god, I, I, yeah. I mean, this t- t- writing the notes for this was was a, was an experience. But essentially, what oh, you I get is like it's a slow growth in terms of territory, in terms of population size, in terms of um, its responsibility, its and certainly in terms of its its power. And a lot of it, I would say, pretty much all of it until maybe the European elections last year. Um, was very much done, you know, by democratically elected governments and heads of state in the EU countries, but not by the citizens. There's very few countries across the EU that have had serious referenda on do we want any of this stuff. Like, mm. it, 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 mm. And that's not because, I mean, I think partly that's by design, but, but partly it's also because of this, this slow, incremental, salami slice way of, of building power and consent like if you look at what it was in 1957 to what it is now you would say whoa why why didn't we have a referendum but if you look at all the little stages in between you do sort of see why those weren't held because it was not the individual step was too well for a lot of countries at least too small to put to a democratic vote if you know what i mean Mm. the insidious encroachment of neoliberalism yeah (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult because I do think the EU is a profoundly neoliberal institution, but I don't think, mm. I think that's more an outcome than a design. Like, mm. partly, mm. yes, also designed that way, but it doesn't need to be, I think. I, yeah, I totally agree no, with yeah. you. Because there's, there's this really awesome uh, lecturer, I don't know if you guys, I'm probably going to pronounce her surname wrong now, but her um, called Leah Yippie, Y-P-I. Uh, who speaks about like she she's really interested in socialism and she's like she gave like a uh, like a plea of support uh, about the EU and socialism and saying yeah we need to change we can change the structure it doesn't have to be the way that it is now it doesn't have to be neoliberal yeah. neoliberal we can make this something that has socialist principles and that's kind of really similar i think as to what obviously he wouldn't be pushed but i think what corbyn's probably going to speak about this week when we're talking about 
you know, the freedom of movement and the EU. I think it's going to be the mm. same sort of ideas of we don't have to apply what has been enforced upon us like that that like that's not uh it's not fate that's not uh, you know it's not a projection or a prediction we can actually amend that yeah exactly and uh you know i think we'll discuss sort of how how we should fix the eu we'll get to that at at, at the end but i think do think that's a very important sentiment like the EU is extremely, and, and the institutions that run it are extremely, they're very legalistic organizations, like the text and the wording of the text and where the comma is, is extremely important. And mm. and so far as I, you know, I mean, not under the, 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 the Lisbon Treaty itself, but like you could write a new treaty of the EU and essentially turn it into a much more socialist green uh, institution. Like there's yeah. nothing... There's nothing in the text itself that forbids that or that is so set in stone that you couldn't. It's just a question of how, yeah. how do you get to that point? Yeah. yeah, it's not it's not necessarily too late for something like that to happen. No, not at all. I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something here. So, even a partial overcoming of these obstacles would mean the establishment of an imperialist trust of European states, a predatory shareholding association, and this perspective is on occasion adduced unjustifiably as proof of the danger of the slogan of the United States of Europe, whereas in reality, this is the most graphic proof of its realistic and revolutionary significance. If the capitalist states of Europe succeeded in merging into an imperialist trust, this would be a step forward as compared with the existing situation, for it would first of all create a unified all-European material base for the working-class movement, the proletariat would in this case have to fight not for the return to autonomous national states, but for the conversion of the imperialist state trust into a European Republican Federation. Yes, that sounds about correct. That, well, that I was mean, I think... Leon Trotsky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, but he is he is fundamentally correct. The, the, I'm not sure I share entirely his optimism. I mean, I, no, I will go as far as to say is that I share his optimism of turning the imperial project um, into a socialist Republican one. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's laying the framework and the framework has effectively been laid already as yeah. much as it's a neoliberal shit web for spiders to fucking conjugate. It's, it's still there. <laughs> hey, I'm one it's, of those it's spiders. Adaptable. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to spiders. No, no, no. We are. We, we, we. You know, we have some function as well. Um, so essentially, that's a a, a, a very brief history. Uh, much of which, well, all of it is extremely complicated, and you know, up for much more talk. But I do want to sort of very briefly, not just like introduce, but give an overview of the the three main bodies that actually decide policy and mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. make the everyday decisions and the big decisions in Europe itself. Uh, they are the European Council, uh, the European Parliament, and the European Commission. Uh, and as a bonus, there's also the ECB and the European Court of Justice. We briefly discussed those. I'm going to try not to talk about them. There's a bunch of other bodies. Is there a reason the EU is really bad at naming bits of itself? I, <laughs> listen, I, I don't know why that is, but it is pretty terrible. <laughs> Like does, does it just sound better in French or German or something like that? And no, it just it's, it, it just doesn't. sounds shit for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It sounds sound shit in every language. Uh, um, <laughs> and there's also a bunch of like other bodies: uh, the Committee of the Regions, the Europe, the Economic and Social Council, the Court of Auditors. But like essentially, 
nobody gives a shit about them, so neither will we. Um, uh, okay, so first thing is the European Council. Again, not the Council of Europe, which is that sort of pro-democracy blah blah thing that was mm. from 1952 and still exists. This is the European Council. Um, this is what you see on the telly when you think of Europe. This is, you know, um, during Brexit, during the Greek crisis, if you see, you know, it's that line of heads of state coming out of big black cars in Brussels. They do the little doorstep interview. Uh, they go in. Uh, there's the big picture taken of all the heads of state, uh, uh, all the prime ministers put together. Um this is essentially what most people think of. Um, I tend to think of when they're all in the big room and everyone's talking to each other, but Theresa May is just sat by herself. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, 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 that stuff. That's exactly what, what it is. Um, and it, its main remit is to provide what's called general direction and strategy uh, to to the, the whole of the Union. And it is the overall has the overall presidency of the European Union. Mm. Um, technically, they meet twice a year, um, but they their meetings can be called any day. Um, so usually there's that a lot often more. recently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so since you know, as ever, since the Euro crisis, really, there's been loads more meetings since Brexit. The volume's gone up even more. Um, but and I do think you know this is the stuff that everybody sees. There's a, a layer underneath that that is, in terms of the, the the legal scope and powers and and the rules that get made. There's a layer underneath it which really most citizens never get to see. But it's where the sausage gets made. Uh, are the meetings of the ministers? So there's I think once every two or three months there's a. Um, uh, a council meeting specifically for all the agriculture ministers or the finance ministers or, um, you know, sport and culture, whatever the configuration is. And that's where a lot of um, the regulations that come out of the European Commission sort of get thought through and give their, their seal of approval, um, yes or no on. Uh, so I think that... And how, how mandatory is, like... The attendance of those kind of things. So, is every member state required to send someone? I'm not sure that f I. Th I think there is a formal requirement that you do attend, um, but I'm not but quite sure. Not you do that, any work yeah. Quite frankly, if you're a member state and you don't send someone fairly senior to those meetings, you're mm. very very stupid because decisions mm. do get taken there, and like. It, it, it would be, quite frankly, as a state, you'd be fucking mad not to send someone. Yeah, no, I was just because the way that, like, um, obviously, if you look at the, if you look at Labour and the Conservatives and the the cabinet rules, there's a lot more cabinet rules in Labour because it's, like, issues specific that aren't really necessarily in play in conservative cabinet if you know what i mean yeah yeah and it was just how they would how they would actually send people across if they're like we don't have somebody for that <laughs> no yeah they they you know it's it's i think it's pretty much unheard of that a country is choose voluntarily chooses not to take its seat in these uh meetings mm. um and i know john you had a question before um about how the decisions are made um it used to be like i said before it used to be unanimous so mm. you'd have to get everybody to agree. And obviously, if there's just like the original six, 
Like that's pretty doable. And when I was 10, it was sort of doable. And when I was 15, it was kind of doable. But then we had the entire Eastern Bloc join in 2006 and seven. Uh, and that sort of, now there's 28 member states still. And you can imagine mm. unanimous decisions with 28 member states, you know, Greece to Hungary, to Belgium, to the UK, to Ireland, maybe not the easiest bunch to get together on one issue. No. Uh, so they try to do um, un- unanimity still because it looks the best and it gives the biggest sort of seal of approval. But the other way of doing it, uh, which is how we currently get around a lot of the shit that Hungary does in particular, um, is we now have qualified majority voting, which means... It- it can be a split vote, but the majority for something has to be not just a plurality of countries, so 15 out of 28, but those 15 within them have to control a majority of the total population of the European Union. So it can't be 15 of the oh. tiny countries. It has to be some of the big ones as well. Exactly. So if France and Germany don't want to play ball, essentially, you, unless the other uh, 26 do agree you don't get a block. So it gives it effectively hands a veto still to the biggest countries. Okay. Um, and uh, let's see, because this was sort of in the news recently, um, I think most people did see a little bit. Uh, we now have a new president of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the German woman. Um, and these... The, the president, she was, she is proposed um, by the council. So, like the council get, has a, the council is the one that formally proposes. And then during the last election, if you remember, and the one before that, there was this bit about the the Spitzenkandidaten, uh, where like all of the main blocks were running Juncker against someone from the socialist group against somebody from the other group. Um, mm. this is this was something that the parliament invented for itself and has no legal basis, which is why uh, even though um, Manfred Weber won in the biggest share of the vote with his block, he is not president of the commission because the council said, no, fuck you, we don't want you. <laughs> which quite frankly... Yeah, well, to be fair, that was a really good idea because Manfred Weber is a fucking psychotic... <laughs> Uh, Christian socialist from uh, uh, Bavaria and like he is the only man well not the only man but one of the few that like nobody likes in Brussels the parliament doesn't like him uh, the council doesn't like him the commission doesn't nobody likes Manfred Weber except Manfred Weber and he's in the right party (laughs) with Angela Merkel essentially oh right okay oh yeah fuck him then (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) but essentially one of the big problems that we have now, which you're really seeing with, uh, the, the, the Polish party that's in charge and especially with Viktor Orban and up to a point with a long history, the UK as well is because it tends to much prefer unanimity. Um, and because of the way all the other bodies are organized as well, is that once you're inside the European Union, but you want to be a bad actor, like you want to just misbehave and be a prick, it's it's <laughs> extraordinarily difficult to uh, for the EU to rein you in if you control the government. So for the for the last few years, for example, the, the Polish government, the Law and Justice Party, um, mm-hmm. has essentially dismantled the independent court system and made the Supreme Court reliant on government say-so. I mean, that's a broad statement, but that's roughly how it works. Um, And the EU has no real enforcement mechanism if one of its bigger states 
decides to just put a middle finger up in the end. That's it's really difficult to control state corruption if the state itself is part of that corruption. Uh, which, yeah, <laughs> um, mm. which sort of brings us on to the second instrument, uh, second big body, which is the European Parliament. Hooray! Uh, now these are the ones that we actually vote the members to. That's what we have the yeah, elections yeah, for, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. This is your the elections you had in two thousand seventeen. <laughs> um, if you see those stupid videos of, um, well, it's mainly Nigel Farage essentially uh, sitting somewhere with a big blue black background and yelling at some EU representatives about how everything's undemocratic. That's all in the European Parliament. That's all there, right. um, and they are directly chosen. Um, there's 751 of them, uh, and they get apportioned by... There's a minimum floor, so like, even if you're Malta, you get a minimum number of MEPs, members of the European Parliament. Um, I don't know how many that is, and the rest are also apportioned by uh, number of population. Okay. And that's also so capped at a certain size. So I think Germany, mm. France have 96 each, so mm. that's like the max cap. Uh, mm. The UK had something like 86, something I want to say off the top of my head, something like that. So it's apportioned by how what your share of the total population is. Gotcha. I almost kind of feel it's a bit like the Electoral College in America, uh, where yeah. the different states have a different weighting almost. Yes, exactly. It's Yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty good analogy, except, of course, that... Nobody knows who the fuck's in the electoral college, <laughs> you know. <No. laughs> and, and the people are not there. The electoral college itself is not democratically uh, chosen. Hmm. The the minimum four will be six because Malta has six MEPs. Yes, exactly. Thanks. Um, and there was what I thought was quite interesting. And I think that's also a consequence, essentially, of Brexit. Um, is that in the last election there was a massive uptick in the amount of of total voting um it had been declining every year i thought the if, if i remember correctly the last ones in 2014 uh, had some had like a th turnout of something like 39 or 38 percent it's just off the top mm. of my head and now it was up to like 45 52 and in some countries like it doubled or something so there's a new interest in europe as a construct and i think brexit has, has a material doing, impact yeah. on that um, yeah, people now care about Europe because it's so in the news. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, uh, the big thing about the parliament itself, how it maintains uh, sort of power, because obviously if you have 751 people who vote according to their own national party's interest, you have complete chaos. So essentially how it works is there's a number of what are known as groups. Um, mm -hmm. These are the big sort of political blocks of people who align more or less. So you have a big, um, what's it, the biggest one's called the European People's Party, the EPP, which is the Christian democratic, neoliberal, market friendly. Um, it's essentially the, 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 it's it's the party for capital. Uh, hmm. I think it's, it's the best. The shithead party. No, not, I mean, the pure shitheads are, are, are more extreme. Um, Oh, yeah, no, this is just the, the banal shitheads. Yes, yeah. just the banal, everyday shitheads, essentially. Uh, second big block is the uh, Socialists and Democrats, uh, S&D. Now, <laughs> the Socialist part... Um, <laughs> you, they need to rename that. 
Uh, this is also the S&D is where Labour has its uh, group membership, by the way. Um, and then the the Greens have a growing block. I don't know if you guys... There were a lot of stories after the last European elections of, oh, the Greens are coming and they're really powerful, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. If, did you guys see that? Any of that? Can't see. I don't to be know. honest, nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, to be fair, like if you're, if you're not uh, a weird spider person, then you probably wouldn't. Um, but they grew from like 35 to 70. Now, that's pretty good. But like in a 751 seat parliament, it's still not the best. Yeah, it's still like just under 10% representation. Then, I mean, I can see why people would think that because a lot of people consider these ones to be the, the fuck it, it doesn't matter vote. So they actually vote for who they really want. And yeah. people tend to go, if you push them for what, what would you really like to see? They go, oh, green policies are good. I'll vote green. Well, I would, but they won't get in. So, and yeah. it's that type of attitude. But the European Parliament seems to kind of, at least in Britain anyway, doesn't really take that font, which explains why they do get a kind of good showing and stuff. Yeah, and 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 they're they're very good. I mean, I've met some of them now, and like they've seen a lot of their stuff. Like, they're a smaller party, but they're extremely good at pushing through things. They have very good communication. Like, they're very effective with the amount of people um, they have. And uh, that's good. The the fourth block is called uh, Renew. It used to be called Alde, A L D E, which is like the um, that's the Lib Dem party. Oh, uh, but they're now joined by Macron's uh, Lib Dems. Of course. Oh. <laughs> so how, so are these groups then made out of uh, representatives from several different countries then? Yeah, they're essentially um, like the Labour Party. In the case of the S and D, like it's, uh, um, I think there's something like sixty or seventy parties in total in it. Uh, but it's like the the Dutch Labour Party, uh, the UK Labour Party, the Parti Socialiste in the you know, it's essentially the centre left parties of Europe formed mm. together to 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 form a big power ranger in the European Parliament, and the other groups do the same. Okay. Actually, just one thing that's just come to my mind now. Obviously, in the UK Parliament, we have a thing called whipping. Is there anything similar in these groups? Yes. It's very. It, it, it's not as strictly enforced, but it's very unusual for blocks to really fragment. I mean, there's always a few people who vote against, and that's sort of permissible. But, like, um, I can't remember the vote totals off the top of my head. But let's say the S&D block has, like, 250 votes. Like, it's mm. rare that more than 20 or 30 of them vote against if the block itself decides to vote in favor. Okay. And do they have a de facto spokesperson at all? Yes, they all have their de facto spokespeople. The one you would know the best because he's also the uh, head of the Brexit delegation is Guy Verhofstadt, the Belgian with oh. the weird teeth. Yep. <laughs> um, he is also the sort of head slash spokesman for Alde Renew. Gotcha. And he is one of the wor single worst fucking I hate Guy Verhofstadt with uh, <laughs> the force of a thousand suns. Uh, he, oh. just a brief diversion, he gets, a, uh, all MEPs get a fairly good salary, which like, fine, I have no grumbles about those people getting a good salary, but he earns like two or three times his salary by uh, consulting in Luxembourg for like a mining cooperative and some other... For fuck's sake. Yeah, 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 and some other neoliberal, like conglomerate, Blackstone finance or some shit like that. 
Oh, nice. Never mind the amount of money he got paid to speak at the Lib Dem conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> when he just started screaming about the creation of a European army. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit weird. That was... A, that was, But that was very... Yeah, that strain of... He's... Like, the, the, the main thing about Renew... About the... About the Liberal Democrat faction of the year of, of the EU is they are the most federalist ones. Like, like they want a fully federal Europe. Like, that's what differentiates them. Are from... they wanting the European army, then? Uh, I, well, I don't know that off the top of my head, but I would say, in generally speaking, Probably. yes. Yeah. Mm. The biggest, though, the biggest barrier, hilariously, to the establishment of a European army is the European arms industry. <laughs> because <laughs> all essentially all big EU countries have their own um, arms manufacturer, BAE Systems, of course, in the UK, um, I can't remember something else, but essentially they all have like a national champion arms manufacturer and a common EU army would have to mean that like they can't sell 20 varieties of everything to different parties. It would all become one procurement system and that's what they don't want. And that's what the governments <laughs> don't want. It's amazing that the entire reason for the formation <laughs> of the EU and it's like initial stages is exactly the reason that it can't actually finish the job yes. because mm. capital's <laughs> taking such control of the fucking thing. <laughs> and the, but my big problem essentially is not just with Giefer Hofstadt, but with the parliament in general. But it's, I think the last election was a real change in that. Is the parliament used to be, or to some point, is really the dumping ground for all the fail sons of national <laughs> politics for like general you know six-toed embarrassments uh, um, or sometimes very competent people but they lost in the last internal leadership election so they had to be removed um, so essentially it was like a shoveling pit where you dumped off all your second and third rate party people who were powerful enough that they needed a chair but you didn't want them for reason you know good reasons <laughs> or bad inside and Whittacombe. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and Whittacombe sort of... But like the, the there was sort of a general trend really where essentially it was just like a dumping ground. It's like these people have a constituency. We can't get rid of them. Um, so we'll just sh ship them off to Brussels where, you know, they get a nice salary. They're still part of the party, but they don't actually interfere in the real business of national government. Mm. Don't get involved in the local politics. <laughs> Um, and UKIP being, of course, quite famous for this because because of your whole electoral system in, in general, um, the first past posting, they never get in anywhere, but they do tend to get in in a big way in Europe. And my one of my many big gripes with like Farage and that whole faction is they don't do anything while they're here because they do get assigned committees and responsibilities. And, you know, uh, Nigel Farage, for example, has been for years and years now a member of the EU committee, parliament committee that regulates fishing. Now, you know, obviously he's always made a big deal and a big statement out of, oh, this is, um, uh, you know, fishing is super important and UK fishing men have been screwed over by European regulations. This all sounds very familiar, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was in that committee. Like, if he wanted to, he could have made amendments, done changes, like protected his own constituency, which is what you're supposed to. And he was just never there. He's got one of the worst attendance records in the in 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 the EU in the Parliament. And while I'm like, look, you know, whatever you want to do, but like, you still are elected, and you have constituents that you're responsible for. And 
I think the way, especially what he's done in in the fishing committee, is like you don't have to you don't have to love it, but like it's really like it's an important thing, you know. Like you have to represent the people who send you there. Yeah, he doesn't care about that. No. Yep. It's a grift. <laughs> yeah, it's an absolute grift, and it's a real shame because I do think. Not to get too much into the fishing thing, but I do think that some of the fishing complaints, generally speaking, in, in the UK and the EU are quite legitimate. Um, and he could have at least done his thing there. So let's move to the third and final block of power uh, in the European sort of constellation, uh, which is the European Commission, uh, which is essentially the, the, it's the government. It's the regulatory body. It's the executive body. Um, it implements the big decisions that are sort of jointly taken between the parliament and the council. Uh, it follows up on things that the countries promise to each other. And very importantly, it writes the the details of the big pieces of legislation, legislation that come through, like any government does. Um, and the way it works sort of in the formal process of the EU is that it, the European Commission is the only body that has what's called the right of initiative uh, so the, a new legislative proposal can only be written by the european commission hmm. so no mep can write you know a draft law uh, uh stating i don't know we are uh you know um uh, everybody gets a f- gets the new free new the new pokemon game for free like the the, the european <laughs> parliament is is barred by treaty from doing that Okay. What fuckers? <laughs> uh, so the European Commission is the only one who does that, and they essentially, I mean, obviously they do take their cues and prodding from council and from the parliament, but they are the only people who can write new um, legis- legislation or propo- pr- proposals, I should say. Okay. Uh, this is a very small organization. I know one of the big things that always comes up in the UK is, oh, they, you know, it's a, the, the Eurocrats, that's a giant bureaucracy, it's there's all these hundreds of thousands of people that work for it. Uh, there's not. It's a very small, like it's a, there's 32,000 people off the top of my head that work for the European Commission. Um, and they make regulatory decisions and like write laws for 500 million people. Like hmm. the city of Paris has way more officials just to regulate Paris, you know, like it's, they're very small, but they are very, very powerful uh, in an, as, as a body. Um, I'll just give you a small example from something that I know quite well is that uh, it's a good friend of mine. He works for a company that uh, produces um, oils and fats from sustainable friendly sources or from like sunflowers and stuff, right? Uh And they have quite a small market, but the market they have is essentially there because the EU mandates that in industrial use, an X quantity of the oils used must be bio or bio-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened two years ago is that a minor rule change went through of like the composition, you know, should oil X have 10% or 5% biodegradable friendly stuff. Um, and the percentage shifted from 10 to five. And essentially that almost cost that entire company its business model because it was so dependent on like one line subline in the subtext of a subtext. Uh, <laughs> so like the European commission, at the sort of operational level can create or destroy entire industries essentially by rewriting small lines of of code yeah it doesn't take a lot to to fuck something like that up like i know that um another thing the eu is really big on when it comes to the economic integration stuff is the way that vat 
works across the EU. Yeah. It's, it's really fucked up and overly complicated, and I really don't want any any detail on that at all. No, um, no, but like, there's, but, yeah. there's, there's no way on earth that, like, a, a regular, normal human beings, like everybody on this podcast except me and presumably all of our listeners... Like, mm-hmm. it, it, there's no, it, you know, like, you don't know this stuff because why would you? You know, it's like almost mm-hmm. the same as you don't know in your, inside your national government who inside the Department for Transport is responsible for the, you know, the regulation that says train seats have to be X centimeters wide, you know? But you wouldn't know this because why would you? There's not, you know, there's no, no even very well-informed electorate would know that kind of stuff because it's not your job. It is though yeah. the job of people like me to do know that stuff because that's where the money is. Um, I, I realize we're going long, so I'll skip pretty much the budget stuff. Budget is very simple. It's 50% goes what goes into what's called growth, uh, helping industries and especially um, helping Eastern European countries build their infrastructure because obviously post-communism, that wasn't in the best state. Uh, and then there's a big chunk about nearly 40% that goes into the common agricultural policy, uh, which is the farm bit. Uh, that's, what, that's what we get. So our farmers can apply for this and get money for yeah, it. From yeah, the all, EU, all EU farmers have a, have a right for this. Um, I, I, this is, I, I'm trying not to open this rabbit hole too much, uh, but very briefly, mm-hmm. put, all EU farmers have a right to it. Um, the biggest chunk of money is given through... Uh, you get, a farmer gets money based on how many acres or hectares they have. So the more hectares you have, the more money you get, which is why you're once a year you see the stuff in the paper of, you know, the queen is the biggest recipient of EU agricultural subsidies, blah, blah. And that's because the queen owns the most hectares of agricultural land in uh, the United Kingdom. Hmm. Doesn't all need to be farmed land either. Technically, no. Technically, but let's not get into this because otherwise, <laughs> I realise that we're at an hour, and otherwise, we'll never be done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we could we could easily make like the the ins and outs of the EU a whole series on its own. Like, it's not it's ambitious, yeah. shall we say, to try and fit this into one episode. Well, I mean, for anybody who's still listening after all this wittering, mainly on my part, if you're interested in this, we can make it a series. But you know, just let us know if this is actually something you yeah are do do let us know. Um, yeah, tweet that shit. Yeah. So, and essentially, so the EU has a budget which is not very huge, but does have a big impact. But the biggest impact, as I as I've said, is through its regulatory powers. It regulates the the markets. It regulates products. It regulates. Uh, it sets standards for nature protection. It regulates farming. It you know pretty much everything to do with stuff you touch in your daily life, uh, from food to medicine to uh, healthcare and beauty products to cars to traffic lights to electricity all of it is in some way regulated at the t- very top level through the European Union or at, at the big level so it's that's really um, you know if you look at the back of a if you look at the like the fine print on I don't know buy a new stereo or buy something else look at the fine print there's going to be little EU labels or in conformity with EU regulation blah blah, blah written somewhere on it it's it, it's it, it's its regulatory power is extremely strong hmm. um all right so that's sort of the big institutions and then I'm gonna try not to to keep, <laughs> to keep talking yeah. <laughs> um 
But I do want to briefly talk about the culture and the people that are here, because I do think mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. informs the way decisions are made, um, the 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 outcomes that it presents, um, and the way Europe projects itself as well. And the th- first thing I have to say is the EU is incredibly hierarchical. It, 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 I mean, for it to function, it almost has to be. But like, there are within the European Commission, there are you know. Um, a head of unit is less important than a director. A director is less important than a, than a, a director general. A director general is less important than and so on and so forth. So there's a the layers, and that translates up to some extent into the European Parliament and also to some extent in council. But like the organisations that run the day to day are incredibly hierarchical, and like making inviting the wrong level of person or addressing the question at the wrong level essentially stymies the process because people don't know how to deal with that. Um, and part of the reason it is like that and part of the reason uh, is that this city is incredibly full up on old white men with an above average salary <laughs> so, so the people who write the rules and, and, and make these decisions are, are generally speaking you know the people who hold real power are old white men over 50 with a nice salary um years of government experience and that informs obviously at the regulatory but also at the decision making level the way they view the world because they all know each yep. other they i mean it's the same in westminster but i think here it's very strong mm. uh, yeah yeah representation in westminster still yeah not great yeah I but think you're it, saying this is this is very much an old boys club it, it's very much an old boy Yes, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I mean, there are some actual like members, men only members clubs here in Brussels where you can meet a lot of them if you like. Uh, well, you can't really because you're not a member. But um, <laughs> but like, and a lot of decisions are made on the regulatory level are made over dinner. Um, you know, mm. let's. All- it's very much got the the old British civil service yes, kind of vibe yes. to it. It's very Mandarin. The, the word Mandarin is very good mm. for it. There's a lot of them and they all, in their own way, they do matter. Um, and But what you have, so you have this sort of smaller group of old white men, broadly speaking, who run the, the world here. But there's also a massive surplus of interns and staffers because there's a lot of, you know, young people in general, blah, 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 have a lot of enthusiasm for I don't know, maybe not for Europe, but for like politics in general. They want to do something, uh, you know, with it. So they all come here, uh, which means they're all underpaid. Um, unless you're an intern in like the institutions itself, like if you work for the lobby firms or if you work for like around the big three, chances are like you're, you'll be paid for, I think the average salary is 400 euros a month for an internship. Oof. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I have friends of mine who worked for six months for zero. Yeah, that's Jesus. like in Geneva. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you get is, again, this is a self-selecting mechanism. The only people who come here are essentially, some people come here and have internships with the institutions that actually pay, I think, 1300 it, it is now. So like, if you want to eat cheaply and not live to, no, not live in the nicest area, you can live in Brussels on 1300 a month. Um, but for the other stuff, like you must essentially have the bank of mummy and daddy uh, pay for your rent for six months. And mm-hmm. essentially nobody gets hired in Brussels anywhere without at least one or two resumes on their CV. So it's this, okay. it's a self-selecting group of 
more broadly speaking, although it is diversifying now, um, it's all more upper middle class men and women who've gone to university and like not just gone yeah. to university, the education level here is incredibly high, like astoundingly mm. high. Um, we did a call last year for a six month uh, position, you know, explicitly saying one research position, six months, no possibility of sanction, nothing. We got 200 CVs in with, I speak two languages, three languages. I have one master, two master, I have a PhD. Like the, the, the general level here is unbelievably high. Um, it, like the, 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 the general way to that, that, like the European commission recruits new, like junior level staffers is through a, a, a Europe wide process, process that happens once a year. Last year, they needed 180 people and I think 32,000 applied. Wow. So, so it would be fair to say that direct working class participation doesn't no, really exist. Zero. It's absolutely zero. There's well, no the way, only way yeah. is to grift yourself into uh, one of the EU parliament positions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If you're <laughs> if you if you are like if you are working class if you don't have university education uh if you don't you know if you don't have a suit in your closet essentially the only way you're going to get in is through the European Parliament. Yeah. Quite damn. Um, and obviously there's a huge rotation between the three big bodies and the consulting world and then they go back and forth and uh, and you know this is more my world but also apart from Washington DC this place has the most lobbyists of anywhere in the world just by sheer number I think there's 20,000 mm. lobbyists in Brussels mm. All right. lobbyists wonderful people <laughs> well I won't defend the whole system too much no. but what i will say is um <laughs> at least in, in in the sector that i work in is there is a generally speaking a very good balance um between uh sort of green public uh i won't say socialist but like public interest ngos and um private more nefarious mm -hmm. ones let's put it like okay. that okay <laughs> uh so it, 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 Yes, there are way too many lobbyists. No, it's probably not a good idea. But on the other hand, there's a lot of representation of trade unions, a lot of representation of, uh, you know, anything from Greenpeace to Friends of the Earth to, you know, you name it, it does have an office. And it depends more on the individual working there, whether or not they have an influence. Gotcha. Uh, so we could talk about the euro, but I do realize we're already running long. So I think we may skip the... Euro, if you guys are okay with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, maybe. Yeah, maybe something we just can one come of the, back to. One other quick question. Um, obviously, uh, everybody's now fully aware about how Britain thinks of uh, the EU. But what do other countries feel about the EU? Inside or outside the Union itself? I, uh, well, one's inside. Basically, are other countries as split as we are? Mm, yeah, no, not as much. Mm -hmm. um, I think in there's a you know some countries have more pro sentiment than others uh but broadly speaking i think it's something generally speaking like 70 percent in favor 30 against and the in favor is rising and i think part of right. the in favor is rising because people see how difficult and painful it is to try to leave this place <laughs> yeah. i think the only the only two really big states that have a pretty strong ish 
leave bent to them would be like Greece, obviously, and yes. um, no, not to Greece, some degree, not probably anymore, Italy as well. I mean, before when you guys had the referendum and stuff, there were voices in France and in Holland, a bunch of other places about doing Nexit, so Netherlands exit or a Frexit, mm. or, you know, all the stupid acronyms. Um, Fuck's sake. But once they saw, you know, what happened post-referendum, that nobody says that anymore. Like, not even the hard Euroskeptics in those countries say that anymore. <laughs> well, at least we've done something good for Europe, finally. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so essentially that's, a, in very brief part, a sort of an overview of, of how this place works. And I think, obviously, the main stuff that we're interested in today is... Let's say they're, you know, we're going to assume that Labour comes into power. Um, what does a Romanian reform position look like? I think, you know, it's an important part of, you know, what's the project here? Yeah. Hmm. From from my point of view, I think the thing that like Labour really, really, really needs to place emphasis on is the way that the Conservatives and obviously the Brexit Party and right-wing countries within Europe have securitized migration. And actually, I think they really need to dispel those myths and actually show that that has happened so we can actually start to treat the, the, like, the movement of refugees and migrants way more fairly and actually you know, look after their human rights because they're not they're not really treated like humans currently, and it's it's really really sad. So that would be like a really key one, in my opinion, for if we hopefully remain. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, any sort of reforms going to need to look on the the kind of migration system and how how things work across the EU because it obviously it is a bit of a fucking fortress Europe at the moment. No, 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 kinda I think that's a really coming yeah. across the med. I mean, migration is really important. And one of the things that we saw, um, you know, when we had what was called the migration crisis, when it was, I think, 2015, it was during or just before the referendum, when you had all these, mm. you know, photos and news reports of people arriving on the Greek islands. Um, mm. mm-hmm. Like that momentum has pretty much stopped. And the way that Europe has stopped it is, for me, in a completely unacceptable way, is what we did is we made a deal with Turkey where a lot of these boats yeah. were departing from, and with, with Libya and, and Algeria. Uh, and essentially, like we are paying the Turks to warehouse refugees who want to come to Europe. And essentially, Turkey blocks refugees from crossing into Europe. Hmm. Yeah, and they it's, do it's that terrible. for us. Essentially, yeah. we have subcontracted out concentration camps. I mean, that's well, really the UK what have done. done that since the start, though. The UK, yeah. the UK's position since the start, for example, just like use the example of Syria, has been okay. We're going to put them in camps around. Okay, we're going to put them in Jordan. Oh, okay, Jordan's now got twenty five percent increase of their population. We're going to keep giving Jordan more money. Okay, this can't happen. We're going to inundate uh, Lebanon yeah. with refugees instead of actually treating them like humans. And I think for me, the biggest problem comes with the UK's policy, the Dublin Act, because Dublin to me, because we're an island, is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Sorry, are you talking about the Dublin Agreement on Refugees? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. the Dublin, sorry, not not Dubs, Dublin. And it's just, you know, that the people have to be able to, like, has to be the first place of landing. Yes, exactly. Unless unless they're going to swim... 
and like a boat's not going to get like stopped there's no way we're ever going to be the first point so it's it's just i yeah it just is completely the way they've treated people is absolutely terrible And, and and i think europe could be the thing that actually if europe if we work together as europe then we can actually you know find a way to move forward with this yeah we just got to get past decades of propaganda against immigrants yeah this is actually what i wrote my thesis my thesis on is um is you know how the how the british political elites framed the syrian refugee crisis yeah and when I tell you, I I would get through like a whole big pot of gum every two days, so I didn't grind my teeth because of this. <laughs> I, I had to read four hundred parliamentary debates, Jesus and Christ. I discovered someone who I never knew existed. And now is like my uh, actually the Tory I hate the most, a, a guy called uh, James Brokenshire. Do you oh, guys yes. know him? Oh yes. Oh my <laughs> sweet baby Jesus. Yeah, he is. No, he's oh, an wow. absolutely vile prick. Um, yeah, I, I never knew he existed, and now he's like, you know, number one person I think about when I'm doing slam balls or something like that. <laughs> no, and I think, but I think the, the the refugee crisis is an interesting sort of point to see the difference between like parliament and council and how it how one to dysfunction it dysfunctions quickly. So you know, as uh, as you were just saying, that the Dublin Agreement is uh, means that you are forced to apply where you land, which means that. All refugees are essentially, when they come to Europe, they apply pretty much to Italy and uh, Greece because those are the main ports of entry and then some through the Balkans, but that's much more difficult. Um, mm. and then but then that's what, why they're be- them being accused the, of... It, so this was dis- discussed in council and obviously uh, the, the, the ca- council presidency and the European Parliament said, look, we need to divide these people. You know, we can't ask Greece and Italy uh, at just warehouse everybody because that's unrealistic, and you know, it's is the burden is way too high for them. So what they said is, no, we have to divide it via a quota mechanism. That you know, even though they land in Italy, some will go to Austria, some will go to Germany, some will go to Denmark, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. But that was completely blocked because the Polish and the Romanians in particular just said, no, we're not taking any of them. Fuck that shit. Yeah, and and once they say that, it becomes nearly impossible to find an agreement. So now there's like a voluntary agreement between some countries, mm. but the mechanism itself is very blocked. But but that again, I think, is because of this mis uh, miscommunication on the difference between uh, a migrant, even it being called the migrant crisis, is 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 branding. These are these are not people who are choosing to move from one place to the other. This is not me deciding, oh, I want to go and live in Italy now because I want to learn how to make pizza. You know, yeah. this is people who ha- are refugees. They can't they can't be at home. They have to go somewhere else. And th- this is this is where my problem comes with you know it, it, all, all these all these organisations, especially you know the the Council of Europe is because they were meant to be set up to protect these sorts of things and they're not doing anything they're they're acting as you know an authority that has absolutely no power yeah and that to me is why like i feel really passionately about 
uh, the the EU because I think that this is like the movement of people and migration is so important and uh, the protection of refugees and the only yeah. way that we're going to ensure that that is something that we have a hold on and we're not just you know set up shop in our little island over here is if we're part of the EU. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and I think migration is one of those those key issues. Uh, I think one of the things that, that Europe is already, it's not great, like it's not enough, but it's definitely better than it was before, is with the new yeah. commission and the new parliament, we are getting an actual Green New Deal um, that looks like it's going to be very well funded. There's going to be a lot of oomph and uh, power and regulation like in all facets of societies. And it's going to be... Uh, like led by the very top of the European Commission. So I do have a lot of, like the goals that it's set out for itself are definitely not enough in terms of the 1.5 degrees warming. But like, I think it is really strong. And I do think what what you are seeing, what we saw in the last election very slowly is that that at the very elite level, they are becoming much more responsive to the wishes of actual people. So in terms of climate change, the environment, uh, even in terms of some social protections and laws um it is getting better it's going to get better very slowly very gradually not enough but I do yeah think it's like only the, the it's only going to get safe is is good it's only actually going to get better as in when capital is not the leading director of where we head mm. um like for as much as yeah, like you said, like the Green New Deal, but that it's good. It's good that they are doing something with that. But again, it's not going to hit that one point five degree mark in time. No, it's not going to be enough, and it's but not going to be enough because there's there's twenty thousand fucking lobbyists. Like it's not going to reach that well, point that we need it to it, because we're still sitting on the we're still sitting at the behest of capital because the primary purpose of the EU is to effectively remove barriers from capital yes but but like in my idealist world uh, we get a labor government in and then so people realize how great socialism is and then that in the same way that all this negativity around brexit you know this this uh can spread through europe yes. and then the eu can be transformed to something to yeah absolutely that's the hopeful dream right here yeah but i do think no i think that's possible and i do think it's also very important i mean Despite of everything, maybe that you've just heard that you do think that like the EU is some some kind of um, you know all controlling entity. It's not like uh, the vast majority of power still resides in the nation state, and also how that nation state chooses to act within the framework of the European Union. So, like as long yeah. as you have a Boris Johnson government uh, or a yeah, Macron that's the government, problem, isn't it? Yeah, it, it doesn't. Oh happen. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the- yeah, no, totally. No, I, I get that. I'm not trying to accuse the EU of being some sort of like fucking autonomous calculator that makes number go up and forces us all to do it. Like it's, it's I know it's not that. It is down to the the national governments which make it up. It is a membership. It's not like some sort of um fucking self aware. Yeah. Um, economy computer yeah but yeah no it's it is something that does need worked out and yeah if we elect the Labour government in the next election then great we could maybe take some steps towards changing that um we're not it's worth noting as well that even if we do elect in a Labour government we're not the only left-wing European country like there are there are other ones that are pretty fucking pretty left compared to anything we've seen for 
decades. I think there are, and I do think, I mean, it's always very hard to judge these things, but I do think that, not just, I mean, also globally speaking, right? I do think that there is a a turn away from the very hard neoliberal thing that we've experienced in the last 20 years. And I do think that, you know, their program itself may have failed, but whatever, you know, I do think Syriza is a sign. I do think, you know, the the growth of the Greens in Germany is a pretty good sign. Uh, There was the Gilets Jaunes, which is very mixed bag, but still, you know, I think Mm. there are there are green shoots of what could be a broader socialist pattern in Europe. If I think I'm going to mm. express it like that. But, and I think for me, which is why I'm very hopeful and optimistic and really want a Labour government, is I do think that if you have a Corbyn-led government and it's a success, because that's the other coda to it, like it doesn't mm. need to just be elected. It needs to, you know... When it's a success. ...hugely perform. And But I do think if you show people that this is possible, I do think that would change a lot of people's minds. But we need it inside the framework of the, the European Union. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, agreed. And one of the things that, that Labour talks about a lot, um, that's always uh, also mentioned a lot, because last this week they did the, um, the broadband thing and the nationalisation of the mail and the rail and all that stuff and the water is uh, state aid rules. Now, mm-hmm. state aid rules are an, in an episode in and of themselves because it's very complicated stuff. Um, a lot of the time when when like people like Boris Johnson or somebody else says we can't do X because of state aid rules, they're lying. It's just they prefer to blame Brussels for something they know is within their control. Um, but there are rules that, that, that are enforced. And I do think those need to be changed. The other big thing especially for countries inside the euro that has to change is what's called the growth and stability pact uh, where in the depths of the crisis we did the most insane thing possible and said no country can have more than 60% debt to gdp and no country can run more than a 3% deficit so like we signed Rip greece yeah not just greece but like essentially the whole of europe is signed into a mechanism that sort of near guarantees austerity because of the way again we don't have time for the euro but that that's one of the big things that we need to to get rid of and obviously if we want to make it a a, a, a much more democratic institution we we have to give the parliament the right to of initiative to write laws because it's mm. to me it's bizarre that they don't have that yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, of any. I don't know of any other parliaments that do work like that. Um, it's yeah, it's a weird system. I think I get why it's a weird system, both in like the fact that its origins are bizarre for a former government, um, and also in the fact that it is so fucking huge. Yeah, and it's came together in some, arguably collaboratively and um, definitely incrementally. It's uh, it makes sense for it to be weird, but then again, it's. Reform would be good. Reform. Yeah. That's that's that would in itself be a good reform. And and to um, and to me, you know, there's still um, if you give it to the parliament. I mean, there's still parliament like the UK European Parliament, like the UK Parliament. You know, there's a committee stage. There's a plenary debate stage. You know, there's a you, you still would have pan-European cooperation. You would just allow the parliament to write things, and I think that would just be uh, uh, really good. You know that that I think that really works, and the coda to that, and that is like a genuine like, please stop doing this to to like the European institutions is you have to stop sending 
you know, the fail sons and the, the clown shoes and the morons over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, just I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit to what what could be. Yeah. If we get a Labour government, the next time we have a European election, the second referendum will have already happened. We'll either have remained or we'll have left with a different deal. If we've remained at that point, the question's been effectively settled. You're still going to get a bunch more of the fucking the shitheads. You're still going to get Farage yes. going there to complain and do fuck all. However, what you're not going to get is a bunch of fub pee cunts because that's all going to drop right off. The Lib Dems are going to have massively reduced seats yeah, when it comes yeah, to that. Yeah. And it will probably be a much larger contingent of socialists that will be sent yeah. from the UK. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, even, again, not in defence of, but, like, I think the UKIPs are cunts when they're here, but then I'm like, they are, they do represent a legitimate, well, legitimate whatever, but, like, a legitimately expressed wish of the Euro- of the British population. Like, it's something I don't agree with, but they, you know, I do think 20% of the UK, maybe 30, just hates Europe for whatever reason and wants out for... Like, I don't really understand the reason, but I do think that, like, having a UKIP delegation here is a legitimate thing. There's also, like, left separatists here in the parliament in a smaller group, you know? Like, they... Mm. That is a... To me, they are part of a legitimate expression of a debate on Europe. And, like, I just wish while they were here, they would actually fulfill that job and not just, like, grandstand and, 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 you know, commit fraud. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Oh, I mean, it's it's a big fucking ask to reform the EU. Yeah. It's, it's a really fucking big task, and it's the kind of thing that we're not going to get without cooperation across Europe. Not from all of it. No. You don't need all of it, though, because you will like never you say, get we've taken away unanimity. That's not a thing anymore. So mm. it'll be good to have... It'll be good to have some sort of... Um, effective socialist bloc not just in the parliament but in the council those kind of things would be good um and i think it's it's, it's doable like i do think good it's things doable, are yeah. possible yeah yeah i do think there's there's but, there's a lot that, like, that can be done and but uh, you know i do also think look a lot of what europe does is really important and really ill understood which is uh, you know the eu itself is the most dreadful communication shop i've ever seen in my life like the eu cannot talk sensibly about itself it's amazing but it is very transparent like a lot of it you can very clearly follow you know the the websites themselves are piss poor design but they do contain you know (laughs) a lot of information if you really want it um and i would also say in terms of the division because we didn't really get into that but again it's we can talk about this stuff for hours is the division of actual tasks and responsibilities between the eu and its member states um Mm. And I would say that if you want to reform your daily life, if you want to reform, you know, make your own personal life better on a day-to-day basis, uh, the primary task and the primary platform there is your council and your national government. It's the EU is important because it sets the big frame, and that's very that that is key. But like the day-to-day lived experience goes through your national government and your council. It, you know. The EU is 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 sometimes responsible, but mainly not responsible 
for bad things that happen and then you know if the tories tell you oh we had to do austerity because you have told us or you know that kind of nonsense like it, it simply it, it's not true so yes europe is very important <laughs> but to improve your day-to-day life you know let's first vote the tories out of office yeah <clears throat> hell yes well on the note of it's not true Ooh. we're not going to do regular comment or commentary out because oh it would be it would be too easy, really, this week. If we were going to do an EU, it would be far too fucking easy. I would take 30 seconds to mine a few things and you would all guess exactly who you were. So rather than do that, I'm gonna we're going to take a little bit of a trip back in time. And oh God. what I have here is I have a list of basically bullshit news stories about the EU. Okay. They're all bullshit. None of them are true, but what I want you to do is guess who reported it. Oh, ooh, okay. Mm. Oh, that's was just... it like which so paper keep... it was in, or which paper it was? Yeah, I'll keep it to. I'll keep it. There are a few kind of non-British ones there, but I'll keep it to like British papers that you will know. I have a massive list uh, to to go through we here. Should, we um, should, David. So... By the way, we should put that uh, that link in the show docs because it's in the show notes because it's quite an amusing uh, repository. Yes, yes, we will. We will. Um, I'm not even reading from that list actually, because I've, I've just I've found something with slightly better layout. Oh, but I'll, we'll put that link up. Um, Okie doke. Right. Light ale to be forced to change its name by Eurocrats. <laughs> Who was it? Light ale. Ah. Oh, Eurocrats. That that's. Uh, oh, I'm gonna say Daily Mail. Hmm. What about the... I'm going to go with the Express. No, I think... I actually feel like, because I read the Daily Mail, I might have read that. Yeah, um, okay. It, <laughs> it was the Daily yes. Mail. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> EU fanatics to be forced to sing dire anthem about EU motherland. <laughs> Who was it? Wait, that's true. I do that every morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No How idea. about the sun? Ooh. Uh, oh, God. Um, I've literally no idea. I'm going to say spiked, just to be controversial. Ooh. I've no idea. No? no what are you taking? A stab, mm. in the, a stab in the dark? No. Like, I literally have... <sighs> I don't know. I feel like that might be something that like Farage might have said, but I've no idea. Okay, that one was the sun. <laughs> okay, what about? There's there's lots of good ones to choose here from. Um, Brussels bans barmaids from showing cleavage. Who was it? <laughs> Well, regularly going to bars in the city, I can guarantee you that's very much not true. I was going to say, the Germans would surely veto that. Yeah. Mm, the sun? That feels like the Daily okay. Express to me, because it's got... I feel like this... There. I always think... Yeah, that's why I think the sun, because wasn't, isn't it, wasn't it the sun on <laughs> page about three? Tits, it must be the <laughs> yeah, sun. Yeah, it's about booze. <laughs> so bad. Yeah, uh, no, I'm changing my vote. I'm going for the sun as well. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. How about the star? Why not? 
Oh, yeah, well, the star Ooh. would get up in arms about that, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was actually not just the sun, <laughs> but the Daily Telegraph picked this one up as well. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, want um, know, I want to know more about the, what that story actually was. <laughs> I'm, I actually think I've got links to them, so um, oh, I can, yeah, I can pass share. that one on to you. <laughs> I can go down that <laughs> hole later on on my Sunday. <laughs> um women to be asked intimate details about sex lives in planned EU census. Who was it? The UK government? <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is that, the this is that phone filter they wanted to do. Uh, well, again, it's to do with tits. So, um, mm. Which makes me want to say the sun again, but you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to go Daily Express again because it, it has that flavour to okay. it. I think that's a Daily Mail thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the Express, I, I don't think the Mail will go into sex as much as the Express would. Yeah. It was the Daily Express. Yes! <sighs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, okay, one, seeing as, seeing as it's me. Kilts to be branded women's wear by EU. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're right, but yeah. Oh, I'm never being on the podcast again. <laughs> I think you're just going to get cut out of this episode. Um, Hang no, on, what, what's, what's the name all. of that Scottish paper? Yeah, that's what I was just trying to no, think. Is, is the Daily something? It's no, no, it's not the Herald. It's the. It's um. Ah, oh, what the hell is it? What? It's got to be a Scottish paper, and I can't remember what the hell yeah, the name it of it is. is. No, I'm, I can't remember. I'm going to say Telegraph on uh, this. No, no, it's not. It's not the Herald. It's the. Um, oh, I, I would I've ask David, but I think he'd like to in Glasgow. Um, give me two seconds. The Daily Record. It's the Daily Record. Yes, okay. yes, it was the Daily Record. <laughs> yeah. It was the Daily Record. Oh, that would have been bad. Five years of living in Scotland, if I couldn't remember that. <laughs> so, hey, if you've not been reading the Daily been, Record, you've saved yourself some shame. pain. <laughs> I like. I always try and read those ones though, because I remember one of my one of my my politics teacher when I was fifteen told me that I should always read, you know, the Sun, the Daily Mail before I read anything else. So, in Scotland, I was kind of trying to do the same. Read the lies before getting the truth. Yeah, so that means when you're ready, you can. You're when you speak to people and people shout things at you. You're like, well, <laughs> I know where you've got that from. But then you should mm. be like, you you should be our, our superstar player on comment or commentariat. I know, but I'm so bad at this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm also terrible at like it, like if someone plays a song, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I like that, and they'll ask me, oh, who is it? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> unless it's unless it's Drake. I will not know, which is really terrible. <laughs> Fair enough. So bad. Yeah. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this back to the pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smoky bacon crisps face EU ban. Smoky. Oh, the bastards. <laughs> Smoky bacon. It's. I feel like that might be the Guardian or something. It's like no, such an overhead I mean, and waitress I this, thing. I think, I think the is... simplicity of this one has got to be the sun for me. No, I think this is. I... It would be a deep. It's it would so be a middle deep, class. It would be a deep cut, but I think it's possible. Is this actually Boris Johnson writing in the Telegraph? Wait, <laughs> <laughs> almost any of the ones that we do here with Telegraph in it will yeah, be yeah, Boris like, oh, Johnson. Yeah, no, me. Let's see. Um, 
No, that one was actually the Sunday Times. Oh. Damn. Oh, yeah. See, middle class, middle class problem. But Boris Johnson, I have to, I mean, brief digression, but Boris Johnson was actually, when he was here in the 80s, he's like the sort of godfather of all these stories in the UK, uh, in the UK <laughs> press. Because essentially, I mean, he he's admitted later on that he would just like randomly make up shit. And I think, the, 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 <laughs> and just to see the response, I think the line he used to use was something like, um, I would just chuck stones over the ball and listen to like the crash of, of garden greenhouses on the other side and the wails of discomfort. So like he was just making up shit and, and he knew it, which is you know, an interesting side note for the man who is now prime minister. <laughs> um, right, how about bureaucrats declare Britain is not an island? God knows. Uh, the Independent? Telegraph? Telegraph. Oh, you've all pushed a bit too far to the right there. That was the Guardian. What? No. <laughs> that was the Guardian. <laughs> what? Yes. I'm outraged. <laughs> I'm not surprised in the slightest. <laughs> okay, what about Euroban on food waste means swans cannot be fed? Oh, I saw this. I saw this somewhere. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, this, uh, uh, what's the most royalist gonna... paper? Yeah, that's what I was... Uh... Daily Mail. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Telegraph again. I'm going to go Daily Mail. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm going to go Telegraph with you. Okay, that was The Observer. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh. And I think we'll, we'll put it off on one more. Okay. Um, One more. Where are we? Brussels to ban mushy peas. Uh, so that's, that's nice and working class. That's got to be the sun. Yeah, the, okay. that's got to be the Sun or the Daily Mail. I'm going to go Express mm-hmm. just for kicks. Oh, okay. It wasn't the Express. It was the Sun, ah. and it was the Daily Mail, oh. and it was the Telegraph, and it was the Times. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> what? <laughs> the media is fucking shit. What, do you know what year that was in? I'm so intrigued that what was so, why that was so important for four newspapers to talk about it. <laughs> it's attack on like the closest thing Britain has to culture. Yeah. Oh, I do love a mushy pea, but <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, that... Our media, ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. you've yeah. got to love it. Your, your media does have a very special attachment to the European Union. I mean, oh, it's great. It's it's the, it's the slow news day generator, really. I mean, it, it, the EU is to our media as the BBC News comment section is to me for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, I like right. that I, game better than the other game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but this this will not be an ongoing one. This is an EU special. Yeah. Um, we'll be back to regular comment or commentary at next week when we can get some more spicy hot takes delivered yeah. fresh from the mains. I think maybe, <laughs> um, maybe somewhere down the line, but definitely post-election, we'll maybe do one on the Euro itself because it's a really interesting thing and Yes, I th- yeah, um, some sort of um, episode on the Euro as a thing um, would be pretty fucking interesting. Um, mm. So I'd be well up for that, yeah. Um, we'll see how we go. Um, as you all know, we've got a pretty busy schedule kind of lined up for the next few weeks with the elections ongoing. So we'll get tore into 
a lot more things as we go. Um, yeah. No further details to kind of give you just now, but just keep an eye out on the Twitter. You can find us at PraxisCast. Um, for any new episodes going up, any spicy hot takes that we find that we think is good enough <laughs> to post out. Um, yeah, but we'll have that all there. And we will be back at the end of the week with another news roundup to see exactly what's happening with the manifesto launches as they start to oh, drip, yeah, yeah, drop out. So good. Yeah, big things this week. So that's and that'll be good. There's a debate as well. There is also a debate, a debate on, on Tuesday. Tuesday. So probably yeah, the I'm same. I'm going to stand up for Labour, so I'm missing it. So that's going to be interesting. Everyone's going to, everyone in the stand up for Labour event is going to want to know what's going on in the debate. So I don't know how they're going to counter that. <laughs> Just assume it was either a win or uh, one of the gammon people had a fucking heart rupture because <laughs> <laughs> someone mentioned the red button. Oh. Yeah, so I think we'll we'll leave it yeah. there, guys. Um, so I've been David. You can find me at Sanitary Nap Time. I've been Rob. You can find me at Count Arthur. One word. Uh, yeah, I'm John, and you can find me at and I always have to spell this T S I E T I S I N. Don't ask me how to pronounce wow. it. Wow, that did wild things to my dyslexia. And I'm Alicia, <laughs> and you can find me at Alicia Jumman. We will see you all next week. Register to vote and vote correctly. Yeah. Yep. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.